What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this episode I'm interviewing Bo Welch. Now, Bo is a phenomenal production designer. He's worked on Edward Scissorhands, he's worked on Beetlejuice, Primary Colors, The Birdcage, and we're going to be focusing on his latest work, which is a series of unfortunate events on Netflix. He also directed a couple of episodes, which we get into a little later, but our primary focus of this interview is his phenomenal, phenomenal work on production design. If you haven't seen a series of unfortunate events, definitely check it out. It's got some amazing acting, amazing editing, and just unbelievable production design. Now, of course, this episode was cut by Carly McKeating, and with all that said, here's my interview with Bo Welch. You've actually, uh, you've worked with Barry Sonfeld before, and so I'm wondering when he came to you with a series of unfortunate events, what did he do to get you excited for this project, and how did he convince you to get involved with it? Well, his excitement was palpable on the phone because he had started the movie uh, years before, and, you know, for a variety of reasons, it didn't work out, but so that it came back to him was very exciting for him and therefore for me. And I, you know, I was possibly going to do it with him when he did the movie, but I was not available. And then, so it all comes full circle and you get another crack at these things. And the combination of the material and Barry Sonnenfeld's point of view and sensibility and and mastery of tone made it irresistible to me. And so when you were doing research for the series, where did you go to find inspiration? <laughs> where did I go? You know, I, I've i done this for a long time, and, and a lot of it just resides deep in the recesses of my imagination. Beyond that, you know, it, it really ended up being a series of unfortunate settings for the poor Baudelaire kids. So I looked at a lot of rundown, decrepit, abandoned examples of architecture around the world, especially in in former Soviet bloc countries. It's funny that you would say that because watching the second season, I noticed when the kids were at school, the school where they have to run around the track, indoors is very gothic and Edwardian. Right. And then outdoors, literally one of my notes is, is this a Polish apartment complex (laughs) because it looks like one of those old soviet you know era blocks well the design for the housing that leads up to the old sort of traditional rundown english school model did look very soviet and they were deliberately intended to look like headstones you know the giant headstones but yeah it has a very you know rundown graphic soviet look for sure well and there's so much variance in the architecture but also inside like i was saying one might be edwardian one might be like when we see arthur poe at work it's very sort of modern and there's a bit of art deco in there so Mm -hmm. how did you bring all these styles together and make it feel so cohesive because looking at it it doesn't feel like it's separate it feels like it works together i appreciate you saying that and that was our intent i guess I would have to say that one of the reasons that it has a cohesive quality is that it was all built, all designed and built and on stage. So you're able to control lighting, sound and lighting, and doing it on stage creates certain limitations that work to your advantage when you're looking for a cohesive sampling of architecture. 
But beyond that, yeah, there was barely a style we didn't land on and then twist and run down and beat up to our own liking. Now, you mentioned some lighting in there. And so as a production designer, how do you work with the cinematographer to make sure that the look looks the way it should on screen? Because it's a very dark and gloomy set, yet we can still see things. Like, it's not so dark that it's unintelligible. It still gives us that gloomy feel. So how did you work with the DP to get that, that feel? It all begins with some very excellent concept art. I start by drawing you know, rough sketches. And then I work with concept artists. In this case, I worked with four different people. And out of that, we generate concept art that becomes not only the tool wherein we say to Netflix, this is what we want to do. And they go, great, love it, go for it. But it also becomes a roadmap for set decorating and painting and sculpting and and lighting. So the cameramen, the uh, directors of photography, look at it. Sometimes they say, great, I can do that. Sometimes, yes, they do the yes and thing. We can do that. And I add a little more fill here. We can catch this texture. And it starts with, with good concept art. It makes everyone's life easier. And you don't have to say, show me 500 samples of chipped peeling paint with three different layers underneath. You know, it's there and you rely on talented people to execute it. So I rely heavily on concept art that has lighting cues built into it. And I've been, you know, as a production designer, you can design and build the most beautiful sets in the world. And if they aren't lit properly, they're just garbage. <laughs> yeah. And conversely, you can make fairly lame half-ass sets when beautifully lit will fool people. And I won't cite any examples of those. <laughs> <laughs> so... You also mentioned that the sets were built. And so what's phenomenal about this and, and kind of blew me away is every other episode, the Baudelaire's are in a new location. Yes. So how did you deal with the stress and the, the time limitations of building all these new sets and constantly altering and changing things? Well, I have to say it was, again, a series of unfortunate and stressful set builds. And, you know, we had this great studio Ironwood, and we were the first people to use it in Vancouver. It used to be a steel mill, and we had it subdivided into like eight different stages with a central corridor linking them all. But everything is right there. Our carpentry, our paint, you know, sculpting, grip, electric, set dressing, hair, makeup, wardrobe, all centralized in this facility like an old-fashioned studio. And that efficiency enabled us to design, build, produce, shoot, strike, build again, rig, you know, ad nauseum for three seasons. And I had a fantastic supervising art director named Don McCauley, who's kind of a genius at arranging, at managing all of this. And I would go into his office and look across adjacent computer screens at this matrix of what's going on. And I would just shut down and say, Don, I can't even look at that. And it basically is a schedule of what has to happen in order for this to happen and then that to happen and then that gets torn down and then the next one. It, and it was just mind-boggling to look at. But obviously he knew what he was doing because it was like doing 13 movies within two and a half years, all on stage. Now, one of the things when you're building and designing all this stuff, it has a hyper-real feel to it. And what I've at least seen when I've watched numerous movies is sometimes 
it's a very fine line between creating that unique sort of hyper real feel and just looking over the top. So how did you walk that line to make sure? Because it feels, like I said before, it feels cohesive. I felt like I was in the world. So I'm wondering, how do you push it to its edge, but then keep it within the world of realism? I think, uh, you know, there are some very preposterous on a conceptual level ideas that are built into the story. And the characters and the narrative and Olaf and the situation all invite you to go big. And what I do is ground it in finish. In other words, you know, you can take the most absurd ideas, but if they're finished and grounded and lit like they really exist, then you accept it. So I would attribute a lot to it to finish and lighting. Okay. And and then, you know, there's a lot of dialogue as we do these things. It's not like here's the answer and we just knock it out. It's an ongoing process. As you build, sometimes you adjust things, size, shapes. As you paint, you adjust things. As you put set dressing in, you would you tweak, you thin. You know, it's art direction. So you're directing the art or craft of film design. And then as you get close to shooting, you work with Barry or or the director, whoever it may be at the time, and push it one way or the other. Now, you've mentioned in another interview that I was reading that you wanted the series to feel from the children's perspective Correct. in the production design. So how did you approach your design to get that look, and what, what are some of the elements you used? Well, I, you know, I remember, we all remember as kids, you know, the kind of phenomenon of Here's the most obvious example. You're a kid and you went to school and you remember that school as one thing. And depending on what was going on in your life at that time, that's how you remember it. And you come back later as an adult and it looks entirely different. For one thing, it usually looks tiny. So you use those kinds of spatial cues. You know, I just force myself to look at it as a kid. And how do I want this to feel to a kid? How would a child describe this room? How would a child describe this environment? And I factor that into the design because I'm basically a child still. <laughs> child at heart. A child at heart. Well, it, it, you know, this enables you to do that. You know, that's one of the beauties of this of this project is you can lose yourself in the world and in the characters. It definitely works. You definitely get lost in that world. Well, thank you. Now, you also got to direct some of these episodes. So what did you take from your experience as a production designer and in designing these sets that you carried over into directing some of the episodes? I looked at the design of it, which is basically my day job. So I would take a season at a time early on, and I would badger them as soon as I could for first drafts of all episodes so that I could quickly tear into them and start designing because I knew at some point, and usually it was at the end, I would get to direct. So I wanted to get a good head start on it. Well, it serves a, a couple of functions. One of them is it gives me a head start on visualizing the story. You know, as a designer, you have to see it the way a director does, maybe not in as quite as much detail, scene to scene and emotionally, but you should because all of that uh, informs the design. So as a designer, you get a head start on directing, quite honestly. And then I, would ne I never knew which one I was going to direct, so I couldn't really favor <laughs> one over the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it, it was a real privilege to be able to, for once, 
build the toys and then get to play with the toys with the characters and the actors. And it really completed the experience of getting lost in this material, which I highly recommend, although it's exhausting. How did you approach working with, I guess, Neil Patrick Harris is a great example, because when I talked to the editors, they were saying that they had a huge range of basically Neil Patrick Harris nails it every time, but there might be variances in the performance or changes from take to take. So how did you work with Neil Patrick Harris to sort of get a range, but still stay within the character that he's been working with for so long? First of all, he's a tremendous talent and like for everyone, but especially for him, you know, he's got a new within the the world of Olaf. He has a new character that he has to cook up for each block. And he, he would come in for a wardrobe fitting dressed as the previous villain and try on the costumes for the next villain. And at the same time, he would be, you know, sort of exercising new sounds, voices and behaviors. And so you get to witness his process, which is amazing. And it's so fast and efficient. And this is on top of a guy who gets in the makeup chair at 4.30 in the morning to get all that Olaf look going every day. So I got to say, I he was really impressive. And he would come to work totally in that character. You know, he and Barry would work out a few things. And they would tweak it slightly the characteristics, the sound, the look, the behaviors. But largely it was Neil doing his thing and quite honestly required very little adjustment once he showed up ready to go. So editorially, there are subtle differences sometimes in his performance, but nothing radical. He just comes in and nails it, hits it out of the park. Now, I have one last question that I like to ask everyone I interview. Sure. And that's, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? (laughs) guilty pleasure film you know that's that thing where you're scanning through channels and what are those shows that you hit on and you can't not watch the whole thing godfather 2 is still the main one that i cannot take my eyes off of the other guilty pleasure is road warrior oh that's a great one (laughs) and then mcgruber in the world of comedy oh i've watched that movie repeatedly i feel like that's so underappreciated i love it our family watches it, and then often we'll have people over up at the cottage where we'll, where we'll be going, and you're familiar with cottage country, and we'll say, hey, let's watch MacGruber, and very often we'll show it, and people will think we're either out of our minds, or they go, oh my God, how come I didn't know about this? I just find that comedy great. So Godfather and MacGruber, how's that for a pairing? That's perfect. <laughs> well, thank you so much for letting me interview. Oh, please. Anytime. So that was my interview with Bo. I'd like to thank Bo for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank Carly McKeating for cutting this episode. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>